Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Heart Failure Beat, the podcast from the Heart Failure Society of America. Before we get into all the great content that we have to share with you today, you know, I'm really interested to hear from my co-host, Priya, how her recent trip to South Africa went. Priya, what did you do when you went down to South Africa last month? Hey, Michael. It's good to be back. And I made it safe and sound after, you know, lots of world traveling. It felt like, wow, 14 and a half hours is no joke. But Cape Town was amazing. So what did I do? I did a lot of thinking about heart failure. And I got an opportunity to visit the Christian Barnard Hospital. And what an amazing set of emotions that was, you know, hot on the heels of discussing xenotransplantation in 2022 to visit the site of the first heart transplants in the world. It was an amazing, amazing time. I try to club that all in besides trying not to fall off tabletop mountain. So, you know, I have just barely managed that, but I'm so glad to be back here and I'm so excited to be back here and happy heart month to you. Well, thanks. And just for the record, I am super jealous getting to uh, go to South Africa is definitely on my bucket list. And I'm happy that you had such a great time while, while you were down there. As you just mentioned, this is Heart Month, and more specifically, we're coming to you during National Heart Failure Awareness Week, which is hosted by the Heart Failure Society of America. During this week, there's a lot of great activities and content that's being shared by our society for both patients and clinicians. You know, we really hope that our listeners participate or look into some of the other things that are going on right now. Absolutely. It's such an important month and it's a great month to be heart healthy and heart focused. And as you mentioned, it's Heart Failure Awareness Week and there are a ton of different opportunities and events that are out there. For the listeners out there, you can find really the detailed itinerary of all the exciting things going on at hfsa.org forward slash hfweek or also follow hashtag hfweek2023 on Twitter and get up to date on all the cool things that are out there. I definitely, this is a week that I follow every year because I always end up learning something new to get us from failure to function. But that being said, we're going to come up to our new segment. I'm so excited to hear what you have for us with Heart Failure Rounds, Michael. So take us away. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Michael Beasley. Welcome back to another edition of Heart Failure Rounds. This month, we are coming to you during Heart Failure Awareness Week. Heart Failure Awareness Week is a nationwide campaign to bring awareness to the risk factors, signs, symptoms, and treatment of heart failure. Heart failure is a progressive condition in which the heart loses its ability to pump enough blood to supply the body's needs. About 6.2 million adults in the United States are living with heart failure, and the course of treatment and patient prognosis can vary greatly by individual. 
Despite the staggering number, patients living with heart failure can indeed live normal, active lifestyles. While the term heart failure might imply that the heart is no longer working and there is no hope for recovery, this is not entirely true. Therefore, the theme for Heart Failure Awareness Week 2023 is heart success, function, not failure. And the HFSA hopes that this will shed light on all that can be done to treat heart failure based upon how a patient's heart is functioning. For more information about Heart Failure Awareness Week, please check out the Heart Failure Society of America's website, hfsa.org. And now, let's hit the wards. This month, I'm going to review three articles that were published in the Heart Failure Society of America's journal, the Journal of Cardiac Failure. The first two articles are somewhat similar in that they comment on the future of advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology practice given certain challenges that our field has faced in recent years. As you may know, Priya and I are both advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologists, meaning that we have gone through a training pathway which resulted in a one-year fellowship in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology. While the path to this type of fellowship training may differ for those coming from a variety of backgrounds, traditionally, this includes the completion of medical school after an undergraduate college education, followed by internal medicine residency and general cardiology fellowship training. The first article, which I would like to comment upon, is called A Roadmap to Reinvigorating Training Pathways Focused on the Care of Patients with Heart Failure, Shifting from Failure to Function. The first author on this paper was Dr. Vanessa Bloomer, who is an Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. And the senior author was Dr. Anulala from Mount Sinai in New York City. The American Board of Internal Medicine first recognized advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology as a cardiovascular subspecialty in 2008. However, it was not until 2013 that the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, formalized the subspecialty requirements and scope of training for this field. So this was only just 10 years ago. The problem discussed in this paper highlights the fact that despite over 1,100 applicants matching into general cardiovascular disease fellowships across the United States of America, only 74 of these 1,100 applicants later decide to apply for fellowship in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology, at least within the most recent match cycle. Of the 127 positions that were available, only 71 of them became filled, meaning 44% of all training positions went unfilled. Because some of these training programs have multiple positions, overall, 45 of the 73 training programs across the country went unfilled and will not have an advanced heart failure transplant cardiology fellow in the upcoming year. Therefore, in the coming academic year, 2023-2024, there will be only 28 sites that house and train an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellow. While we wish that this was an aberration, unfortunately, these trends have been occurring for the past several years, and interest appears to be waning as time goes by. 
The authors of this article have highlighted several different areas in which they think improvements may be made to help attract and retain advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellows. First of all, they feel that there is an inadequate exposure to advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology during cardiovascular disease fellowship training. Many general cardiology fellowship programs do not have exposure to advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology at their local sites, meaning that there is not an LVAD program or a heart transplantation program. And while some of these programs are able to allow their fellows to visit neighboring programs in order to get such experience, this is not possible for all locations. The core cardiovascular training statement suggests eight weeks of heart failure training over the course of a general cardiology fellowship, but it does not specify that this needs to be exposure to advanced heart failure. I myself feel that exposure to advanced heart failure or heart failure in general should become a predominant focus of general cardiology training, given that the number of patients with heart failure is only growing, and some of the other aspects of general cardiovascular training are becoming less evidence-based, such as the role of interventions in the cardiac catheterization lab. Therefore, it would make more sense to me, and possibly some others in our community, that general cardiology trainees get exposure to heart failure and advanced heart failure during their first year of fellowship. An additional area that could be addressed is updating the curriculum of advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellowships, and actually maybe also altering the name of the fellowship itself. Advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology describes a context in where clinicians are taking care of advanced heart failure patients. Now, if we're thinking about this as ACCHA stage D patients, that doesn't necessarily encompass all the types of heart failure that physicians who might want to go into this space may want to take care of. There's other areas such as specific cardiomyopathies, such as different inherited cardiomyopathies or hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that might not necessarily be stage D heart failure, cardio-oncology, cardio-obstetrics, pulmonary hypertension. These different areas may be of interest to trainees, but they might feel they might not be getting enough exposure to that if they go into an advanced heart failure transplant cardiology fellowship. Therefore, modifying the curriculum to include all these various areas while maybe minimizing or reducing the amount of time spent taking care of heart transplant and LVAD patients might be a consideration to attract more trainees. Their next point in the paper is that there is a paucity of heart transplant and LVAD related jobs out there. And this is why a curriculum update might even be more important. Most of the jobs currently exist at community centers that have an affiliation with a tertiary or quaternary institution. Therefore, the training of heart failure physicians should try to better mirror what the job market looks like. And finally, there's a perceived idea that there might be lower compensation or lower quality of life for those in advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology when compared to other cardiovascular subspecialties. And this too would need to be addressed so that the field of heart failure can attract the best and brightest of those in general cardiology fellowship. The Heart Failure Society of America has put together a task force that is looking into these issues. They're hoping to survey cardiovascular disease and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology fellows. They're hoping to survey cardiovascular disease and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology program directors. And they are hoping to survey current heart failure cardiologists, medical centers, and different clinical practices that take care of these patients. This is to better understand why physicians decide to pursue a particular path of training, what is impacting those decisions, 
And what does the job market and practice environment look like for people who want to pursue this line of training? There appears to be a need to rebrand the fellowship in general so that it is not thought of as taking care of only patients with ACCHA stage D heart failure or advanced heart failure and create a fellowship training structure where fellows who complete this fellowship will be well trained to take care of patients with all kinds of heart failure, including the vast array of cardiomyopathies that are out there, the different special situations that may present such as cardiobstetrics and cardio-oncology, cardiac critical care, as well as the traditional need to take care of patients who need LVADs and heart transplant. The next article that I'd like to discuss is titled, A New Norm for Early Career Advanced Heart Failure Clinicians. And this was co-authored by Nikhil Naran from Advocate Christ Medical Center in Oaklawn, Illinois, as well as Dr. Noshin Reza from the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine and the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Doctors Narang and Reza, like me and Priya, are early career cardiologists who had our training impacted by the COVID pandemic. In this paper, Drs. Narang and Reza discuss how the COVID pandemic affected the training of many current early career cardiologists by taking them away from the structured rotations of their fellowship programs and placing them into situations where the care of COVID patients was required. Because of these interruptions or transitions, some early career cardiologists may not feel well-equipped or as well-equipped as they would have liked to begin practice as an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist. Therefore, the authors argue that there should be a bridge at the start of early career that would help such individuals transition into stable practice habits and build a very successful career. They discuss the importance of mentorship from mid-career and late-career cardiologists in the field to help understand the importance of program building, practice development, and leadership. They also bring up the idea of proctoring, which would mean allowing early career cardiologists the opportunity to spend time working alongside specialists in the field in areas where they did not have such exposure during their fellowship training. For example, perhaps part of their fellowship year was impacted in a way where they were unable to participate in a given rotation and never had the opportunity to become exposed to a certain area of advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology. Let's say, for example, they did not have the opportunity to do a pulmonary hypertension rotation. Therefore, perhaps proctoring along with a specialist in pulmonary hypertension for a period of time might help them feel more confident and comfortable in their personal clinical practice. They argue that allowing early career cardiologists this opportunity would not only make the cardiologist more better equipped to take care of patients, but it would also allow for them to become more productive for the healthcare systems within which they work. Finally, the authors also talk about some of the strengths of early career cardiologists and how that these may be relied upon to help bolster or accelerate the careers of such early career individuals. First of all, many early career cardiologists are quite proficient in the use of technology and social media to spread information about heart failure and medical research, and the groups for which they work could rely upon their skills in this area to help reach patients and provide care for patients through non-traditional methods, such as telemedicine. And finally, early career cardiologists tend to have a more heightened focus on the needs for health equity 
and the inequalities which exist within our healthcare system. And such individuals may be charged with efforts to overcome such shortcomings within their local programs. And finally, the third article that I'd like to discuss is a guideline statement that was co-sponsored by the International Society of Heart and Lung Transplantation, ISHLT, as well as the Heart Failure Society of America. And this is a guideline on acute mechanical circulatory support. The first author on this paper was Dr. Alexander Bernhard from the Department of Cardiovascular Surgery, University Heart and Vascular Center in Hamburg, Germany. And the senior author was Dr. Michael Giverts. Dr. Giverts comes from the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. This guideline statement is an incredibly detailed and expansive work and the coverage of all recommendations and the entirety of the information that was provided in this guideline would be impossible to cover during this short segment. Therefore, I would just like to give a brief overview. The guideline was authored by four separate task forces. Task Force 1 focused on the timing, patient, and device selection of acute mechanical circulatory support and the paraprocedural and postprocedural care for cardiogenic and pulmonary shock. Task Force 2 looked at adjunctive pharmacologic management, such as the use of anticoagulation or antithrombotic therapies. Task Force 3 looked at treatment in specific patient populations, such as patients with adult congenital heart disease. And Task Force 4 focused on goals of care and the role of palliative care, social work, and ethics in the use of acute mechanical circulatory support. Again, because of the length of this article, it's impossible to summarize it in its entirety. However, the authors did share with us five key points. Number one, classification of degree of shock should be rapidly assessed by a multidisciplinary team using an algorithmic approach. Number two, acute mechanical circulatory support should be initiated as soon as possible in patients with shock who fail to stabilize or continue to deteriorate despite initial interventions. Number three, the most common adverse events for all acute mechanical circulatory support devices are thrombosis, bleeding, and infection. Guidance on the use of adjunctive antithrombotic and antimicrobial therapy are key to successful outcomes. Four, specific patient populations, including women, racial and ethnic minorities, the elderly or frail, and those with obesity or cachexia, benefit from focused recommendations on the use of acute mechanical circulatory support. And five, goals of care should be clearly defined and shared decision-making and informed consent used when considering acute mechanical circulatory support. Well, thank you again for listening to Heart Failure Rounds this month. This podcast should be published shortly after the Valentine's Day holiday, and I wish everybody out there a very happy Valentine's Day, but especially I would like to wish a happy Valentine's Day to my wife, Mwavisu, as well as to our four darling daughters, Helena, Rose, Heather, and Leah. I love you all. And now, let's move on to our feature conversation. Hello, and welcome to the Heart Failure Beat podcast. It is my tremendous pleasure to introduce a trailblazer in our field and one of my favorite people, Dr. Noshin Reza. She's coming to you today to answer some questions about an amazing scientific statement that she co-authored. But before that, in full disclosure, let me tell you all about Noshin. I can't fit it all into the introduction for this podcast, so we will need to do an abbreviated version. 
Dr. Reza is an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist and a translational researcher at the University of Pennsylvania who focuses on cardiovascular genetics and phenomics. Dr. Reza cares for patients in the Penn Center for Inherited Cardiovascular Disease and in the section of heart failure transplantation and mechanical circulatory support. Dr. Reza is also the assistant program director of the Cardiovascular Disease Fellowship and the director of the Penn Women in Cardiology program. She is a very active leader in the Heart Failure Society of America. We're very fortunate to have her, the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology. And we are also very, very fortunate to have her as an associate editor for the Journal of Cardiac Failure. So with that very brief introduction, Nosheen, welcome. Yes, thank you, Dr. Mopathy. That was very generous. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so excited for both of you, good friends of mine, to be the new co-hosts of this season of Heart Failure Beat. I have to say, I obviously have listened to your first couple episodes, and I am really excited to be a part of what I think, Priya, you mentioned in one of the episodes about using this platform to bring science to life and really distribute the science that we're generating, hopefully, for the benefit of our patients and the rest of the heart failure community. So thanks for having me. No, thanks for doing such a great job of doing that in your sphere. And lovely to have you as a guest on here. I'm going to give it over to my very, very awesome co-host, who's going to give us a short introduction into the statement that you will be discussing more about. Michael, take it away. Oh, thank you, Priya, and welcome, Nosheen. Uh, really excited to have you on today. The manuscript that we're going to be discussing today will be published in the journal uh, Circulation. And the title of this manuscript is Complementary and Alternative Medicines in the Management of Heart Failure, a Scientific Statement from the American Heart Association. The first author on this paper was Dr. Cheryl Chow, who's a farm D and was the chair of the writing group. The writing group consisted of a number of individuals from a variety of different councils within the American Heart Association, including the Clinical Pharmacology Committee, Heart Failure and Transplantation Committee, Council on Epidemiology and Prevention, and the Council on Cardiovascular and Stroke Nursing. The reason why the group got together to write this scientific statement was to focus on two primary areas. One was to review the evidence for the efficacy of complementary and alternative medications or medicines. I guess moving forward, we can call that CAM, C-A-M, as they did in their manuscript. And also to review the safety of these therapies for patients with heart failure. The writing group was composed of you know, a variety of individuals from different backgrounds, which was great to see. One of the things, obviously, that we like to highlight here on our podcast and with HFSA, and that included cardiologists, scientists, pharmacists, nurse practitioners, so people from all different walks of life that contribute to the heart failure team. So with that introduction of the paper and what it was about and who were the individuals that wrote the document, Dr. Reza, you know, I think this was a very interesting paper and we really encourage all of our listeners to read it once it becomes available either in print or online as it is available at this current time because there's so much great information in there. And as a clinician, this is something that at least I know I always feel very self-conscious about in regard to having a lack of understanding or maybe a lack of great confidence in how to address these things with patients when they bring it up to me. That being said, as part of the work that you did with the rest of the writing group, how would you go about advising other clinicians to get a better understanding of how to address or be knowledgeable about CAM when taking care of their patients or when their patients discuss that they're 
using these substances in addition to the more traditional heart failure therapies. How should we go about learning more about this and know how to adequately address these things with our patients? Yeah, that's a great question. So first, I would say I think it's helpful for us here today and for clinicians to just understand the definition of complementary and alternative medicine, or like you said, we'll just sort of refer to it as CAM for the rest of the podcast. So CAM, or I'll just start with the complementary part of CAM. Complementary medicine is used in addition to standard treatments. So that's what we refer to as the complementary part of CAM. And alternative medicine is used instead of standard treatments. So together, we're sort of enveloping all the terms that are both used in addition or instead of our standard treatments. And in this case, obviously, we're talking about therapies for heart failure. So clinicians should be aware that there is a general lack of federal guidance and regulation of CAM products sold in the United States. And given their potential for toxicity, healthcare professionals need to be aware of what our patients may be using that's beyond, again, what we would consider standard therapy. I think it's important to understand that people use CAM therapies for a variety of reasons, some of which may include, for example, coping with side effects of their primary disease or of the standard therapies we're using to treat disease. They may use CAM therapies to comfort themselves and ease psychological stress or worry. They may also use CAM therapies to feel empowered that they are doing something to take charge of their own care or to try and think maybe they can cure their own heart disease. So I think even before just asking about which substances or therapies that they're using, I think asking patients about their motivations to use CAM therapies can really be helpful to establish a baseline understanding between clinician and patient and can really actually even be helpful for the clinician to identify opportunities for optimizing their standard therapy. So then after a clinician gains an understanding of the patient motivation to use CAM therapy, then of course we're going to talk about which therapies that the patient might be using. And instead of referring to all of these therapies under one umbrella when inquiring about their use, it may be helpful for clinicians to specifically ask about them within categories. So for example, asking specifically about dietary supplement use, herbal supplement use, vitamins, mind, body, or spiritual therapies, or then sort of broadly any over-the-counter pills or beverages they may use. Well, thank you. That really helps clarify the wide breadth of different topics that fall into this category. You know, the next question that I, I would want to pose to you is, you know, I think probably most physicians or clinicians have probably a standard way that they approach a clinical encounter. I know when I'm coming in to see a patient in the exam room, my personal routine is that I'll be checking, you know, vital signs. I'll be checking to see, you know, what is obviously the reason for the visit. And then I will go through medications and allergies prior to doing then maybe like looking at their recent diagnostic testing and then going through the rest of the encounter. I guess, how would you recommend, because I cannot just imagine how many of these patients are actually using CAM. And as the document really does such a great job of explaining about why it's so important for us to be aware of which forms of CAM may be used by a given patient, how would you go about encouraging clinicians into incorporating a review of these therapies or the possibility, or how would you approach bringing this up to your patient in a clinical setting in a way that may be non-threatening or seem to be, I guess, part of the normal standard questioning that you'll do as part of the rest of your introduction to opening the encounter with the patient? Yeah, of course, another really great and practical question. So I think just to set the stage, like you mentioned, clinicians should know that 
CAM therapies are being used quite commonly among our patients with heart failure. And at least available data shows us that greater than 30% of our patients are using at least one of these therapies. And we also unfortunately know that approximately half the time, the patients do not share their ongoing CAM use with their healthcare team. So just as you mentioned, I think we have a real opportunity here to break down these barriers and to really help our patients feel comfortable sharing their CAM use and exploring these topics with us. One of the features of this particular scientific statement that I really like that we did and we hope that clinicians will find helpful are the considerations for clinical practice points that we included after every major content section. And so the very first content section and the very first consideration that we mentioned is that healthcare professionals should inquire about CAM use at every clinical visit. And we sort of just talked about ways that clinicians can do so, but I'll reemphasize, I think in your particular question, doing the medication reconciliation is obviously a perfect time to incorporate those kinds of questions about dietary supplements, herbal supplements, and things that I mentioned earlier. And then, of course, just really incorporating it into your HMP at the very end, if that sort of helps your rhythm, because as we're advocating for in the statement, we're saying talk about it at every visit. So putting it sort of in that checklist of things to address at every visit is also helpful. And then I think other ways that we can really help our patients kind of open up and discuss these things with us, as I mentioned before, you know, really, number one, understanding their motivations for taking these therapies, I think is hugely important. And I think sort of engaging with our patients as partners in this journey as well. So really empowering the patient to before they bring to you or if they're curious about any CAM therapy, really asking them to find out about potential side effects or interactions with their heart failure medications. That can, again, be a way to empower and engage them in their own care and help them feel that you're not there to, quote unquote, take away their therapies, but instead really to work with them to make sure that their therapies are safe. And as you started at the top of the podcast, sort of talking about the multidisciplinary team who authored this scientific statement, of course, harnessing the expertise of our pharmacists and other members of the multidisciplinary care team, while sort of offloading us, perhaps from remembering to do this at every visit, is another strategy. So if you have, for example, a GDMT titration clinic, which I know many of our colleagues and partners out there listening do have the really fortunate resource available to them, maybe thinking about adding this to the medication reconciliation is something that could be beneficial to our patients. And then one thing that I think is really worth mentioning that I've even used in my practice is if the conversation gets a little uncomfortable or if you feel like the patient's not opening up to you, one of the things that I actually do is just use the computer to pull up a website that I think will be helpful to both sort of give resources to me and to the patient. And so one of those resources that I think is really great is the NIH's National Center for Complementary Integrative Health website. So on that website, they actually have resources for healthcare providers, which includes checklists and toolkits and ways for you to engage with your patients about this if you're uncomfortable sort of starting the conversation. So that's another resource that I think is available. Well, that's wonderful advice. And it seems to me, and just personally, just learning so much from reading the document, that this is such an important area in which that we really need to be mindful of if we want to provide great patient care for our heart failure patients. So thank you to you and, and the rest of the writing committee for putting this together and, and sharing this information with everybody. Now I'd like to pass it over to Priya, who's going to uh, ask some follow-up questions. Priya, please take it over. Sounds good. Thanks very much, Michael. Oh my goodness. I was going to say, you know, I loved your answers and I love the way that the document was written and I especially liked the translation for considerations for clinical practice. So I think you covered it in a beautiful way, how you could sort of set the stage and integrate seamlessly 
importing this information in a non-judgmental and threatening way and sort of putting it on par with sort of your medication history and the rest of the history that we get and really kind of allowing patients to understand that that is an important part of their care and that, you know, their autonomy of picking things are important. They're just as important as reviewing their medications. And I love in the document how you call out all the sort of major classes and maybe less known classes. There was a lot of things on there like gossip all that I have to say I've never encountered. So hats off to you and your co-authors for really a great and comprehensive statement. And I was just wondering, you know, since we are such data-driven communities and we always sort of revert to this idea of, okay, well, what's the data behind it? What's the evidence behind it? I was wondering if you wanted to speak about any research support that might be available out there or research that supports the use of CAMs, things like CoQ10 or omega-3 fatty acids that, you know, have made a lot of headlines when it comes to the lay press. And they're probably one of the, the better known sort of alternative treatments and medicines out there. And I'm wondering if there's something that as a community, we could say, well, hey, this is the actual scientific strength of the data for some of these more popular supplements and CAMs. And if you wanted to speak to that. Yeah, you raise a really great point. So just thinking about what I mentioned earlier, that CAM use is quite common amongst our patients, but our evidence base regarding how these therapies affect our patients with heart failure is pretty sparse. There's really, I think, what you would consider not so much high quality evidence about their use or their efficacy in heart failure. So it's actually a huge gap in research and opportunities for future directions. And so generally sort of, you know, for this paper, of course, we looked broadly at what available literature was out there. And most of it, of course, was in observational studies. There were a few clinical trials of patients with heart failure in particular for the ones that we've heard of most commonly, like omega-3 fatty acids, for example. So I can start there and sort of talk about the strongest evidence. But in general, for our patients with heart failure, the endpoints of these investigations, both observational and clinical trials, really focused on heart failure symptoms, functional capacity, quality of life. And then a few did focus on major adverse cardiac outcomes. I think what we mention in the paper with regards to sort of summary knowledge about what to know about each specific therapy and as we saw in the 2022 ACC, AJ, HFSA heart failure guidelines, omega-3 fatty acid supplementation is really the only one called out in the guidelines. And it is recommended with a class 2B level of evidence B recommendation for patients with heart failure, specifically NYHA class 2 to 4 symptoms, to be used as an adjunctive therapy to reduce mortality in cardiovascular hospitalizations. So those data come from amongst a couple of trials, but specifically I can mention the GISI-HF study. There were modest reductions in hospital mortality for cardiovascular causes and death in patients with chronic New York Heart Association class 2 to 4 heart failure who consumed one gram of omega-3 fatty acids daily. And then a secondary analysis of the vital HF study demonstrated a significant reduction in recurrent heart failure hospitalization among adults who were taking omega-3 fatty acid supplementation that was compared to placebo. So again, omega-3 fatty acids with the highest sort of RCT level of evidence that has made it to our guidelines now at this point this year. But again, we do also know from these clinical trials that while omega-3 fatty acids may not cause harm in heart failure, at least that we've discovered so far, in previous studies, investigators have demonstrated a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation in patients who take high-dose omega-3 fatty acids. That was seen in two large clinical trials, so it is something to certainly note. 
And then I think also maybe of interest to mention, not particularly thought of, of course, as a drug therapy, which many of people sort of think is the limit of CAM therapy, but also yoga and Tai Chi fall into this recommendation or sort of this group of therapies of CAM therapies. They have been tested in smaller, of course, randomized trials or sort of random clinical trials and were found to be safe, well-tolerated, of course, adjunctive therapies in patients with heart failure. Some of the endpoints that these studies used included six-minute walk distance, which was improved in these patients, depression scores, which were lower, and of course, uh, greater ability for patients to perform aerobic exercise. So those are, I think, two specific therapies to call out that at least had sort of the extremes of evidence, a lot of observational studies, and then some RCT-level data that we saw in our literature review. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's wonderful for all the folks who are like, show me the data, which is a lot of times is me. I think that's a wonderful overview. And certainly, I think it's also amazing that when we think about medicines, we always think about vitamins and supplements and things. But you bring up a great point that things like Tai Chi and yoga, things that we all sort of reach for can actually be therapies. And, you know, there's a level of evidence that supports their use. So I think that's a great insight into that. And one of the things I think as clinicians we worry about the most is really sort of side effects, right? Every time we have folks on cocktails of therapy, we always think about risk versus benefit. And we talk about that a lot. And especially in the heart failure and advanced heart failure population with really sort of the potpourri of drugs and the drug interactions just waiting to happen. Do you feel like there's a a particular set of associated dangers that are maybe a little bit more prevalent in our population or things to really watch out for or look out for with the use of complementary and alternative medicines in our particular population? Yeah, great question. And I think is really the primary hesitancy of clinicians to allow patients to really, quote unquote, use any of these therapies. And so I think just by the nature of guideline-directed medical therapy for heart failure, a lot of the things that we worry about are things like electrolyte derangements, changes in renal function, because obviously those are issues that we particularly care about with our proven therapies we're using to save and prolong life and improve the quality of life. And so in the scientific statement, We have sort of extensive data tables that I would certainly direct our listeners to that really outline the evidence for both benefit and harm with regards to these studies. And again, I'll emphasize again what I mentioned earlier to the answer to the last question. There's not a ton of data, especially in human studies on harms in patients with heart failure. So a lot of these data on harms are extrapolated from preclinical studies or sort of other knowledge that we have from pharmacokinetic studies about metabolism of the drug. But I think relevant to our patients with heart failure, in the scientific statement, we talk about namely alcohol, caffeine, grapefruit juice, and I think most of us would be aware of what the side effects and the adverse effects we're talking about with regards to heart failure there, LV adverse remodeling, the risk of arrhythmias, and of course, direct interaction with guideline-directed medical therapy. And then in the statement on the other lesser known CAM therapies, like one you mentioned, Gossipol, for example, we talk about the other things to think about pharmacokinetic interactions. Some of these drugs can be both inhibitors and inducers of therapies that we use in heart failure and both adjunctive therapies for other chronic conditions that a lot of our patients with heart failure may have. Risks of hypokalemia, again, for example, ended up being a common one that we encountered across the board. And so it certainly is important for clinicians to be well-versed in both the benefits of these CAM therapies, but also things to watch out for. 
That's awesome. I especially love the color codedness of, you know, sort of the uh, uncertain safety. These are harmful. <laughs> I really like that. And I think, you know, you, the statement did a wonderful job because, as I mentioned, you know, there were certain things like gossip all that I had never heard of. So I will tell you, I will reach for your statement or Google it quickly <laughs> if somebody tells me something that I've never heard of. And I'm like, let me find it in, in Dr. Reza's scientific statement. So I think, you know, it's a really a great resource to our community. And kudos to you and, and your co-authors for a fantastically written scientific statement for a very timely subject as more and more people, I think, sort of turn to the internet and incorporate many different modalities of therapy, as you mentioned, into their care. It really behooves us all to understand where they're coming from and give them the best sort of informed advice that we can. I think your statement does a great deal to move that forward. So thank you again. And thank you again, Nosheen, for taking time out of your schedule to answer questions about this document. And we had a great time. Thank you both so much. I do have to obviously shout out my amazing co-authors and our fearless leaders, Cheryl Chow and Beacon Boskurt for shepherding the statement through. They did an incredible job and are the architects of all the amazing points that you noticed on the scientific statement and really tried to make it relevant for clinical practice. So I hope we achieved that. So thanks, guys. Thanks, Nashin. Welcome to a new segment of From Failure to Function. Over the last few months, there have been a few trials that were published or updated since their initial presentation. One such trial was the study of heart and kidney protection with empaglifosin, the empikidney trial. The goal of this trial was to assess the safety and efficacy of empaglifosin in improving cardiac and renal outcomes amongst patients with chronic kidney disease. The design of the trial included eligible patients who were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to either empaglifosin 10 mg daily or placebo. The total number of participants was 6,609 patients with a follow-up of two years. The mean patient age was 64 years, with a third of those patients being female, half of those patients having diabetes, and about 26% of that patient population comorbid for cardiovascular disease. The primary outcome was progression of kidney disease or cardiovascular death. For empaglifosin versus placebo, the rate was 13.1% versus 16.9%, respectively, with a confidence interval of 0.64 to 0.82 and a p-value of less than 0.01. Outcomes were similar amongst patients with or without prior cardiovascular disease and with or without known diabetes. This updated trial and findings were published in the New England Journal of Medicine just a few weeks ago on January 12, 2023. From drugs to devices, it's been an exciting few years for therapies such as transcatheter edge-to-edge repair for the heart failure community. From the TCT meeting a few months ago, updated study results have come out for tier-based interventions, and one tier-based intervention we may hear more about is the Pascal transcatheter mitral valve repair system. The article Mitral Valve Transcatheter Edge-to-Edge Repair Using Mitroclip, or Pascal, a multi-sensor propensity score-matched comparison, was published in the December 2022 edition of the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. This retrospective multi-center study compared the Pascal and MitraClip technologies regarding procedural results and short and long-term outcomes after mitral valve transcatheter edge-to-edge repair, or TIR. 
data from three high-volume centers were analyzed. The primary endpoint was residual MR at discharge. A total of 412 patients, 216 of which received MitroClip, and 196 that received the Pascal device, who were treated between 2018 and 2020, were included. Both tier systems achieved equally high technical success rates, with a 30-day mortality of 1.1% in both cohorts. One-year follow-up showed similar MR reductions, with residual MR being less than or equal to 1%. The conclusion for this retrospective multicenter study was that established MitroClip and novel Pascal mitral valve tier systems were thought to be safe, with comparable short- and long-term outcomes. As mitral clip-based interventions evolve and are adapted by our heart failure community, we undoubtedly will be looking forward to the final five-year results from the COAP trial that will be presented at the ACC meeting this March. I look forward to sharing with you all the late-breaking heart failure science out of New Orleans. Stay tuned. Well, wow, Priya, thank you so much for another great From Failure to Function segment. That was really, really cool. Thanks so much, Michael. I hope our listeners enjoy that and everything else we brought in this episode. I feel like we talked a little bit about everything from cutting edge science to comparative alternative medicines. And a big thank you again to Dr. Noshin Reza, co-author of the scientific statement on CAM. And for us and the Heart Failure Beat podcast, we wish you... Happy listening. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.